0: This is McKinsey on Healthcare, a podcast series about visionaries, leaders, and problem solvers shaping the future of healthcare. On today's episode, recorded live in Chicago, McKinsey partner Pooja Kumar is joined by Tom Zenty of University Hospitals and Kathy Jacobson of Frederick Health.
1: So first of all, Kathy and Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We were actually supposed to record this as a podcast, but we're just going to do it live (laughs) instead. And today, we're really hoping to focus this on the role of academic medical centers and academic-based health systems in our broader healthcare ecosystem. This is a topic that (laughs) I'm personally passionate about, and I know that these two leaders are as well. So I'd love to just start this off by asking each of you, tell us what brought you into the academic space. Was it something you always wanted to do?
2: Sure. I never intended to go into healthcare, so kind of fell into it. My background is actually that I'm a CPA, got my accounting degree, and uh, went up to Chicago with one of the big accounting firms. And when you get up there, they give you this list of industries that you want to work in. And I checked off hospitals, and there was a background for that. My mom was a hospital RN her entire career. And my first job, actually, Uh, Coming in high school was washing dishes in that hospital. So I know hospitals, they actually freak out a lot of people and especially accountants. And so people didn't want to be on hospitals. So I ended up being um, one, but I started on the health plan side and was there for about eight years and then went over to the main medical center working in the C-suite. Originally, I became the CFO, chief strategy officer, and it went from there. So really had no intention of going into academic medicine. And actually, when you start on the health plan side you don't look at it through a very good lens because it's expensive, and that's exactly what you don't want to have when you're on the health plan side. I I really got the completely different view once I got on the inside over at the academic medical center and was actually able to see the specialization, the differentiated services.
0: You yeah, I had a slightly different path. I'm a little bit atypical in that I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was fifteen years old. I wanted to be a hospital administrator, which is a really um, geeky sort of thing to do at the end of the day, right? but I never wanted to get into academic medicine, and the reason for that is I grew up in a really small town, and the local hospital administrator uh, took an active interest in me, and she was a fascinating leader and very powerful woman and someone who I'll never forget. It had a big impact on my career. I had to do an undergraduate internship, and I worked in a small 200 bed non-teaching hospital. Mm. But then coming out of graduate school, we had to do an internship, and I interviewed at 10 or 11 places. I read the theses of the previous students where they did their uh, administrative residencies, and those that did them in... Uh, non-academic medical centers. Mm -hmm. And what I found is people who went to the academic medical centers had a very narrow slice of something that they were responsible for. And I didn't want to get lost in the complexity of a very large, complicated organization where I wouldn't have an opportunity for a breadth of experience. So I chose to go into the non-academic world to begin with thinking that I could always work my way up, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately what happened.
1: Very different path. What would you say is the hardest part of your job right now?
0: You know, what everybody talked about today, and it's going to resolve uh, around one issue if we can ever figure it out, and that's culture. And I must tell you, everything that I heard today was consumerism, 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 consumerism. Academic medical centers are not designed to be consumer-centric. So what I find to be the most challenging is changing a culture that has been ingrained and taught for over 100 years. Now, people are very responsive, and we've made terrific progress. But there's always some challenge in an academic medical center because you try to balance the tripartite mission of research, teaching, and clinical care. So to your question specifically, we put something in place about six or seven years ago. It's an acronym called CARTs. We began to break up some of our faculty's activities along clinical administrative research, teaching, and service responsibilities. Well, when you begin to parse that out, it's not quite so easy because if someone's busy seeing patients, they don't have time to do their research or their teaching, but at the same time, if you look at their clinical productivity and it's 9%, you know that there's something not quite right in that formula. So by breaking it out, it made an enormous positive impact. There are over 5.5 million people in the United States that work in hospitals, and I can assure you that there isn't one who wakes up every morning looking to make a patient's life more difficult. It's a very dedicated, committed group of people, and the responsibility really resides with us to create the culture, provide the resources, do the things that we need to do to make hospitals a more effective, more efficient, high quality, better outcomes environment, which is really what I think we're tasked with the responsibility of accomplishing, and not just today, but in the years to come.
1: Maybe just to follow on that thread, Kathy, I'd love to understand what are tactical things that you've done when you've tried to start to shift some of that culture or at least even shift priorities?
2: Yeah. And I think Tom summed it up really well on on the environment in which we work around culture and exactly the way I do it is around priorities. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have the same priorities as the faculty do in terms of seeing patients. Research is important. Educating students, service. So all the priorities are shared, but the priorities are not necessarily the same, in the same order, on the same day, because we have to take care of patients. So we have to do research, we have to do teaching, but I need to make sure my patient doesn't wait 270 days to get into memory care. You know, so I think what we've really worked on is as to the tactical, as to how you move the change management, is explain the why and really explain the why over and over again, about how the world is changing and that people are not going to wait 60 days for you anymore and that yes they actually do want to schedule their appointments online and yes that will require that you use a standardized scheduling template to do that so how do you explain to somebody who is very interested in research in their program that you need to be able to have patients to provide that research on and i mean in terms of me explaining it to our administrators who are working with our faculty talking to the chairs talking to our service line leaders and you get some champions, you know, you get physician champions behind you, you know, to help lead that charge, and that's how you start to make the change.
0: We reward for meeting those metrics. I get a lot of patient letters, a lot of patient emails, Mm -hmm. and a lot of patient visits. The biggest complaint I hear about was the bill. Mm -hmm. I get very few complaints about the clinical care. Virtually everything is in what we do that's customer facing. They love the care, they love the outcome. 99% of the complaints I get are around billing. Why is that? Well, for 100-some years, we've been focused toward not billing individuals, but by billing insurers. And the problem is if you get a bill, it's totally unintelligible. And the first thing it says on the top of the bill is, this is not a bill. bill. <laughs> so you ask the question, well, then why am I receiving it? Well, rather than talk about the Medicare requirements, why we have to do that, we send a follow-up. And then that says, this is not a bill. So the point is, you need a Rosetta Stone to figure out a patient bill. But we have to move in that territory of consumer facing in ways we've never done before. Now we're getting a fair amount of consternation about, is this an, is this an issue of margin over mission? So that culture is what we really have to manage. We need to be more psychologists than business people mm-hmm. because this is about leadership. Right. It's about buy-in. It's about ownership. Mm-hmm. It's about participation. And it's about changing the culture.
1: How do you as leaders think about investments that you're making or how you spend your time when you think about the academic, clinical, and research missions? And how do you see that changing, let's say, 10 years from today?
2: It's really like any other business. You have to make enough investments that have return, but you have to understand that you have to have investments that are infrastructure also as well. So for example, I believe, and it's becoming more and more prevalent, that academic medical centers are kind of owning the cancer space. And a lot of that is because it is so dependent on research. And that's what we do. And we do that better than anybody else. And so, of course, whenever we go to focus our research investments, it tends to lean towards cancer. But at the same time, they can't do their research and clinical trials and some of the things they're doing unless you're investing in very robust basic science. Mm -hmm. And there might not be a dollar-for-dollar return on that investment that we're putting into basic science. There never is. But you have to have enough infrastructure to be able to support the things you're doing in clinical research around cancer, heart and vascular, neurosciences, transplant, and so on. And so you just have to balance that and make sure that enough of your investment is going to be ROI because it does all come back to clinical revenue, which funds all your investments in research and education. How much research can you really do that's productive if you're focusing on clinical care? And how do you balance that with faculty who went into academic medicine for a reason? They went into that because they like the teaching environment, because they like the research and the discovery. How much of that can you actually balance? Mm -hmm. And so that's the other conversation that we're having. One of our departments has every single faculty member is 20% productive time or protected time for their research. So kind of challenging is every single faculty member or on a balance in terms of your department, Mm -hmm. I think is the other way we're looking at balancing mission.
0: Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is sometimes in adversity, meaning uh, when there's a competition for funds. Uh, creativity becomes paramount. I think one of the things that we don't do enough of in our industry is effective philanthropic support. I've been in the organization where I work now for 17 years and 16 years ago, we started a big program in philanthropic support for our research and our teaching mission. Faculty said, well, this is not a rich community. I work in uh, Northeast Ohio in the Cleveland environment. Well, interestingly, if you fast forward now to 2019, We went from having virtually zero academic chairs to now having 140, and it's a million and a half dollars to fund a chair. So we've raised in the past uh, 15 years, now approaching $2 billion a year, predominantly to support our research Mm -hmm. and our teaching mission. So we went from, no, that's impossible, to all of a sudden, we need more people in our department of philanthropy because we know we can raise more money. There are other forms of finding resources in which to make that happen. In our uh, area of research, we created something called the Harrington Discovery Institute. It's a way to get promising research across the valley of death and to get uh, funded with additional support from us and from others. So we just created a relationship with uh, University Hospitals, Harrington Discovery Institute, and Oxford University in England. Mm -hmm. We bring in 20 researchers uh, per year whose research is now going to be oriented less toward basic science research and more toward commercialization. Mm-hmm. So things like intellectual property makes a big difference. Having an appropriate sharing program in the event that something becomes brought to market creates a personal opportunity for the researcher. And we just announced that we're working now in partnership with uh, Morgan Stanley. They have now 17,000 wealth advisors across the United States who are advocating uh, Morgan Stanley gift cures which it would be a tax-deductible donation to the Harrington Discovery Institute focused on finding cures predominantly for rare diseases. So there are things we can do.
1: One of the other themes that I think has come up in several of the discussions is entrepreneurialism that exists in the broader ecosystem towards parts of the healthcare continuum that AMCs traditionally have not focused on. So social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. shifting health to the home, other things of that nature. Where do you envision AMCs playing a role? If you look again 10 years out, do you see that shift continuing with a push towards home? And what will be the role of the academic medical center?
2: Our academic medical centers are full, like 99% full. When you are like that though, you have immense motivation to get patients out of the hospital. So we have actually been very, very thoughtful and intentional about working in population health, working in risk-based scenarios, about moving patients first from inpatient to outpatient and then outpatient to clinics and then clinics to home. So I think what you're going to see in the future of the academic medical center is I do see a trend towards aggregation around specialists because we do more of that than anybody else. And we are starting to demonstrate the value that because we do more of it than anybody else, we can do it better, better outcomes, and we can do it at less cost. Mm -hmm. And that's our challenge to be able to do that. At the same time, We have to be very, very diligent about moving out the things that don't belong there. We treat over 90% of the sickle cell patients in the state of Wisconsin because we are the urban academic medical center where that's congregated. Probably going on about six or seven years ago, we opened an outpatient sickle cell clinic and dramatically reduced inpatients, readmissions, emergency room visits, and saved a lot of money for predominantly the Medicaid program um, in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, We run a 24-7 cancer clinic because we are the biggest cancer provider in the area so that they can go to a clinic 24-7 if they're having an emergency with the clinicians who know them, the nurse practitioners who know them, and they're not in the emergency room and they don't get admitted.
0: It will depend on the month, but I would say on average, uh, we are actually transferring out about 100 patients a month to one of our other 18 hospitals in Uh our system, closer to home, closer to where the patients live. They don't need an academic medical center to receive world-class care. Your point about social determinants, I think as an industry, we take this very seriously. We all do community benefit analyses, community needs assessments, and so forth. And we just did an example where we looked carefully at why our neonatal intensive care unit was so full. And we found many academic medical centers are located in inner-city locations, which by many measures are economically challenged. Why is our NICU so full all the time? What we found is that the vast majority of babies who are coming to our NICU were coming from that neighborhood. And many of the moms were coming to deliver having had no prenatal care whatsoever. So um, again, back to philanthropy, uh, we went out to raise $26 million uh, to create a new outpatient center that would be focused on well baby care, prenatal care, family care. Uh, We've done a lot of other things that are more community-based. But at the same time, there has not been a grocery store in that zip code for probably 30 years. When we were building the center, We said to a developer, would you be willing to build what could ultimately become a grocery store, a 50,000 square foot grocery store on this campus? good news is uh, about five months ago, uh, a 50,000 square foot grocery store opened in that location with teaching people how to shop because they never shopped in a grocery store. They were getting their nutrition from gas stations, Mm. convenience stores, and fast foods. So we asked the question, is there an opportunity for us to reduce the number of neonatal intensive care unit admissions? Well, it's still a little soon to tell because we just opened up the center about 10 months ago. Mm -hmm. We've now seen over 55,000 people in that center in 10 months. That's just but one example. And other academic medical centers around the country are doing similar Mm -hmm. things. So again, the point about emphasizing philanthropy in our world is critically important to further the mission. One concern that I have is if we're going to drive down the cost of care, which we need to do, who's going to pay for training the next generation of physician? Nurse. As a speech therapist, fill in the blanks, right? So we have to make sure that we're going to find ways to offset and have an ability to continue to provide the research and teaching that we need to do. And I think philanthropy is one way in which we can focus in that regard.
1: AMCs now are covering approximately 40% of uncompensated care across the nation by latest estimates in that range. So I'd love to hear from both of you how you think about that as part of how you plan, where you focus your services. And where do you see that shifting in the future?
0: I think when we begin to think about high deductible health plans, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a continued proliferation. We're seeing patients right now with $50,000 deductible. That's a big problem because it's catastrophic insurance. So I think the problem is more than likely going to be growing, especially as we move into things like bundles.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: There's no way an academic medical center can provide a bundle at a competitive rate to what you'd find in a community hospital or a non-teaching hospital. Mm -hmm.
2: Right. You know, I would agree. I think, number one, our location usually puts us in urban settings where poverty is located, so we're going to always do that. And we tend to be the level one trauma centers. You know, so those are the things that tend to bring in the uncompensated care. It gets back to social determinants and how do you address upstream on that. It is going to be a continuing cost of carry that we're going to have to do and that we are going to have to continue to find solutions for. Our high-deductible health plan concentration was 20% in Chicago. It was 30% in Milwaukee, and it was all falling to bad debt. So that's real about what's going on with the high-deductible plans.
1: Where do you feel like there are more opportunities for engagement?
0: Every hospital has a patient bill of rights. About a year ago, we began to create a patient financial bill of rights. There are, in our case, 10. Six of the 10 don't relate to us. But we have to make sure that we're going to be protecting the patients who come to us for care. One of them is a patient's right to know who's in network and who's out of network. Well, we won't know that Mm -mm. because that's going to change on a pretty consistent basis, right? But we don't make that determination. A second is no surprise billing. Well, if someone gets brought to us to our level one trauma center, by air ambulance, we didn't call the air ambulance, but we're the ones who bear the brunt of a $60,000 transportation bill that we had nothing to do with. So the point is, if we could get aligned as an industry on a patient's financial bill of rights, that to me will set the tone and create the culture upon which we can work effectively with our payer colleagues and others to make sure that we're gonna be keeping the patients in the front of everything that we do.
2: I think the other plea that I would make is we gotta get over the price per unit conversation. Because if I can keep a patient out of the hospital, why am I arguing about the extra 10% that I get on the stay? We're working to take the utilization out, working to take the length of stay down. We're working to push them into the outpatient. I want to stop having the conversation about the unit price. We have very consciously done at the academic medical center is shift. We are now at or below the market on most of our outpatient. And we've increased on the inpatient where we do the things that only we do but then recognize the fact that we're doing that and that for commodity-based services, I can match my imaging in the outpatient with any hospital and a lot of the outpatient centers because we very consciously have made that move. Then we can prove that we do it at a national level with outcomes and with pricing. So I just would rather have a conversation about the total cost of care, risk recognition.
1: I think that's it for the time we have. So thank you both for for your thoughts here and uh, we look forward to more conversations. Great, thanks. Thank you.
0: Thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. To learn more about McKinsey's work in healthcare, please visit mckinsey.com.